Hello and welcome. This is Ron Cohen. I'm a tax partner with the firm of Greenstein, Rogoff, Olson and & Company. And this is our weekly tax update. It is September 6, 2022. And this uh, time we're going to cover that the IRS has made some comments about the additional $80 billion in funding over 10 years. There is a reminder uh, that I want to give out about the unclaimed property report. A very tedious, hard thing to do here in California. Uh, the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants issued a letter to the IRS begging and pleading for more time and more uh, help and simplifications to deal with the Form K-1 and K-2 that goes on the partnership and S-Corp's return. I want to talk about how it's a roadmap for auditors. Uh, next, I want to talk about being very careful if you are low income and using a VITA, volunteer, V-I-T-A, uh, volunteer, long history. And then I want to mention uh, CPA Zoller, who is a tax CPA out in Phoenix, who put out a podcast with a wonderful detailed analysis of the Inflation Reduction Act, even better than what I've heard from big national firms. So we're going to attach that to the show notes. And a note about um, uh, the car credits for electric vehicles and the additional requirements that have put, been put on under the Inflation Reduction Act. Okay, some uh, quick caveats and my little infomercial. Uh, we're down here in beautiful downtown Fremont, California. And every morning I wake up in the shadow of Mission Peak. This is my uh, podcast, which is a little bit self-indulgent, nar narcissistic, but I appreciate this time with you. Take no reliance on what you hear in this podcast. Plagiarism is okay because in the tax biz, we're all taking from the law and other advisors who put out information on the internet. Uh, we're going to talk about tax policy, politics, tax politics. That's okay, but I stay away from national, environmental, or social politics. That's not this podcast. Our firm does about 1,400 tax returns of various types, uh, people from little old grandmothers all the way to multinational corporations and high-paid executives. We also deal with family office services for big, wealthy families with far-flung entities. Feel free to call us if you need that kind of support. I'm no cheerleader from the tax for the tax system. I work with it. I try to do best my best I can. I view it as part of the technocratic administrative state that's developed here in the U.S. So I'm no cheerleader for this system. But that said, we always try to get an A plus on all tax returns, not an A minus, not a B, not a C, because that avoids audits. And remember, the best audit is the one that never comes. And the best IRS agent is the one you never meet. Uh, my magic partner here, Alan Olson, has a podcast, American Dreams. Uh, our website is www.groco.com. That's G-R-O-C-O.com. And you can find American Dreams on that as well as this podcast. Our phone number is 510-797-8661. And I'm uh, here with the four other partners. Uh, happy to talk for a bit, see if we can help each other, see if uh, we can address your issues. Call anytime. 
Okay, so I'm going to talk about first the uh, IRS and the Inflation Reduction Act. The IRS put out a, uh, a couple paragraph note after they receive or will receive $80 billion over eight years. There's been much controversy about that in the public press, but I leave that to other, uh, other discussions here. I just want to read these few paragraphs, give you the tone of how the IRS thinks about itself. The signing, uh, the signing, uh, and I should introduce this. This is from Charles P. Rettig, who is the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. More about that in a minute. The signing of the historic reconciliation package marks a transformational moment for our agency and an opportunity for the future of tax administration. The IRS has struggled for many years with insufficient resources to fulfill our important mission. During the next 10 years, these funds will help us in many areas, including adding critical resources to not just close the tax gap, but meaningful improvements in taxpayer service and technology. This will allow the IRS to provide services to taxpayers in the manner they expect and deserve. The Tax Act also includes a wide range of tax law changes that we have to implement very quickly. Yes, indeed. Uh, given the scope of the bill, keep in mind that these changes are not immediate. It's a 10-year plan, and it will take time to put these provisions into place. More details will be available in the coming months. We have a lot of hard work in front of us to deliver, and based on high expectations, this historic funding will provide. But I have great confidence IRS employees are up to the task and will deliver for Americans as they have countless times before in our in the history of our agency, close quotes. That's from Charles P. Reddick, Commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. So um, here's the inside scoop uh, from, uh, from folks on the East Coast that I talked to. Uh, one uh, practitioner was begging the IRS to finalize an audit of a simple, small return that's dragged on for way over a year. And the IRS agent was apologizing to them, saying, saying, look, look, it's a madhouse here. Everybody wants to quit. They uh, implement new software. They give us no training and no warning. Boom, come into work, and there's new software that you don't know how to use. This was an IRS agent who said, quote, unquote, it's like Barney Fife is running the place. Well, that's just one opinion out of one field office. But I think there's a, there's a good need for help. That I mean, they only answer about nine percent of the phone calls, so that's uh, that's no good. And I hope that they will improve in many ways. But uh, keep in mind my mindset, a little bit of tax politics politics here, is that my belief is the whole tax system is way 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 too complicated, and so their dream is to be able to fully implement and service um, the incredibly complex, unfair uh, tax system. And I would reshape the goal entirely, but of course, nobody's asking me. Uh, Charles P. Reddig is the commissioner. He is out of the law firm of Hochman, Salkin, Reddick, Tosher, and Perez with more than 36 years of experience. I just want to make the point, I've seen this now for 40 years, they go out and uh, they hire people with some political connections who have been tax lawyers their whole career. 
and make them the commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service. Shame, shame, wrong. No disrespect to Mr. Reddig, but wrong, wrong, wrong. There is a world of difference between being a litigating, tax planning, public lawyer running a private practice and walking into being a government top administrator of an organization with uh, about 80,000 people now, soon to be well over 100,000. Uh, it never works out because the skills of a litigating planning lawyer are incredibly different from the administrative skills of, uh, uh, especially for uh, the, the uh, Internal Revenue Service and the Department of Treasury is the number one top financial organization on the planet. Something like four and a half to five trillion dollars move through it every year. Hundreds, a hundred thousand about of employees, all kinds of issues. And, uh, for a lawyer to stop, to step into that is, uh, quite an accomplishment. So I, uh, I wish them all the best. Uh, but, uh, something's wrong. So what happens is the, the lawyer walks in. He's a policy guy, right? He's a policy guy. He's working on big issues big macroeconomics. We should do this. We should do that. And all of a sudden, he's put into a largely administrative job. Uh, they get to make a few policy decisions. But what happens is they're, they're, they're working with the lifetime bureaucrats in the IRS. No disrespect for them. It's, it's, someone's got to do it, right? And um, uh, uh, so it's a horrible job because you come into a job like that, think you're going to change the world. And then the bureaucrats tell you, well, your lane that you can affect something is very, very narrow. And uh, that, then there was uh, uh, Mr. Shulman, who was the um, commissioner under the Obama administration. He made over 100 visits to the White House. Now, I wonder what they were doing. Well, I think they were working on the uh, Affordable Care Act issue, highly technical, long-term issue. And then the voluntary disclosures uh, that I mentioned in a prior episode about the bringing offshore income. But he came to the White House a hundred times to confirm that. Uh, now, is that wrong on the face of it? Absolutely not. But most IRS commissioners, a report came out, said if they went to the, to the White House twice during the whole term of a president, that was a big deal. So he went from twice to a hundred times. And um, uh, so the question is, to what extent is politics getting involved in, in, in taxation? Certainly, there's a lot of politics in taxation. And uh, again, not judging, not giving an evil intent, but Mr. Shulman definitely had a different kind of role than the current commissioner. All right, I'll leave that at, at that. Now I want to talk about escapement, escapement. Just quickly, if you're a company and you take deposits from people, People pay you uh, money. You hold on to the money until the job is completed. For some reason, they die. They pass away. They move away. They forget they gave you money, even if it's like 10 bucks, right? Uh, uh, you have a duty under California law and the, uh, the, the controller of the currency to fill out a bunch of forms called the unclaimed property holder remit report and send the money to the state after about six months. You can't hold on to it. You got to give it to the state and then the person or their heirs can go and get a refund of that money from the state. Uh, I mention this because there's a question on a bunch of California forms saying, has the business entity previously filed an unclaimed property holder remit form? 
with the state con- controller's office? Yes or no? Well, got to tell the truth. Yes or no? And that begs the question, well, if I didn't, should I, should I be doing it? So just pointing that out. All right. In the tax world, there's lots of pain and suffering and gnashing of teeth right now because uh, the IRS added Schedule K2 and K3 to, um, uh, to partnership and S-Corp's returns having to do with international activities and allocations of foreign tax credits. These are, these are a number of pages, very tough form instructions, and there's 23 frequently asked questions that list grows over time. The American Institute of Certified Public Accountants wrote a letter to the IRS saying, please make it stop, make it stop. <laughs> you have all these uh, boxes with instructions where if you have 150 IQ, you read the instructions and say, well, it could be this, and it could be that, or it could be this. It's unclear. Uh, so what should we do? Well, if we get it wrong, there could be a huge penalty. So, of course, you take the most conservative view, but this is adding a lot of time and effort to uh, tax returns. And um, I, I certainly hope the Treasury Department, the IRS, uh, read. And I have read the whole thing. It's about 14 pages. Take into account the uh, American Institute of Certified Public Accountants uh, suggestions. And I put this on here in case any other tax people are listening. You can click through to uh, the letter and the discussion uh, all about it. Regarding Form K-1 and K-2, one of the points is uh, there's been a great change in the way forms are designed, IRS forms are designed. Um, as you can imagine, you're being audited by the IRS, usually going to have at least one, maybe two, three-hour meetings. These situations are extremely complicated, having to do with foreign tax credits and pass-through entity credits from partnerships and S-corps. And what they've tried to do is say, all right, we need to make the tax repair, lay this out on a form so that the auditor has a really quick, clear roadmap. He doesn't have to ask 20 questions. You, the preparer, have been required to fill out certain boxes that are identified with certain information so that the auditor doesn't have to drill and drill and drill and ask questions to figure it out. So that's what's going on with K1 and K2. The same thing's happening in 5471s. More questions every year. As they figure out, wouldn't it be cool if we asked this question, made the taxpayer and the preparer work harder? So uh, in, in essence, your returns being audited uh, as it's being prepared, rather than having an auditor tr- trying to, on a first impression basis, ask a lot of questions. So if you are low income, you can go to an organization called VITA. It's, voluntarily, it's voluntary something. But it's made so that um, individuals who need help with their tax turns, because the system is too complex, even for low-income type uh, situations, uh, can get some help, right? You don't have to go to a $300 an hour big tax firm. You can go to a a VITA site, and the IRS sets them up, and you can have someone help you with your return. For years, Vita has had trouble. They've gone back and looked at the returns prepared by these volunteers. And what they do is they get a bunch of people who say they have uh, some background tax returns. They work for a Vita supervisor. So he's the big dog uh, who uh, does some reviewing and supposed to make sure the work being done by the uh, volunteer people is correct. And, uh, and, and it's run under the IRS. Well, (laughs) there's been, there's been lots of problems. I read one year that 
on, on a second look of VITA prepared returns, something close to 50% of them were wrong. Now, keep in mind, these are pretty simple returns for low-income people, W-2, uh, you know, uh, some small deductions, uh, maybe some childcare credits, some Obamacare issues, uh, pretty, pretty straightforward returns. Although, let me catch myself to say, there's nothing simple about the Obamacare uh, reporting if you uh, buy the insurance from the exchange and literally have to fill out two or three complex pages to uh, report the, that you don't have any additional income related to Obamacare. Again, that's a whole nother session that we could talk about. It. Um, but, but what's happened is the Taxpayer Advocate Service, which is the good guys, they're the guys on the white horse. They, uh, they're part of, but separate from the Internal Revenue Service. They kind of have oversight. They can come in and try to fix things the IRS has done wrong. So let me read you this paragraph about VITA. The, uh, the director of a large voluntary income tax assistance program site, that's VITA, volunteer, volunteer income tax assistance site, uh, contacted TAS, Taxpayer Advocate Service, with concerns about refund amounts some of her clients received on their 2015 returns. The VITA site director, this is the guy who was supposedly watching over what was going on, learned that one of the volunteer preparers had contacted the clients subsequent to having their tax returns prepared at the VITA site and became concerned that the returns filed may not be correct. The Taxpayer Advocate Service advised that the, the VITA director to have the clients contact Taxpayer Advocate Service directly to review the 2015 account, account information. Now, again, these, these are low-income folks who deserve total respect, should get all the help they're entitled to, and the, the, the problem is that their stuff's being done wrong. As the cases were received, the case advocate uh, at the Taxpayer Advocate Service determined that the preparer did alter the returns prior to e-filing by adding invalid itemized deductions or credits, resulting in a much larger refund than the taxpayer expected. So they, they took the returns after supposedly the engagement was over. And then before it was e-filed to the IRS e-file system, they made changes without the taxpayer's knowledge because taxpayer now taxpayer would have said, well, that's not true. Don't file it that way. But they were doing it. The inflated refunds were deposited into the preparer's bank account. <laughs> and then the preparer transferred the refund amounts the taxpayer expected to the taxpayer's account. So he skimmed it, right? He inflated the refunds. He put the money into his bank account. That's a whole nother issue about, about using the, the, the client's uh, um, bank account numbers. And then he gave the money to, he had an amount sent to the taxpayer for what they expected so they wouldn't rat him out. And he kept the difference. Oh boy, that's so much jail time. I can't even imagine. But I just want to mention that be very careful with these Vita folks. Uh, um, most, I'm sure, are wonderful people doing great work helping out low-income folks. Uh, they do a great service, but some are really, really bad. Okay. Mr. Ed Zolars is a CPA in Phoenix, Arizona, and he's also associated with the Kaplan uh, Professional Education Organization. And I am putting in the show notes a link to his podcast on the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, because being the nerd I am, I listened to it, 
And boy, oh boy, he did a better job than a lot of the big four firms. He just goes into tremendous detail. So those of you who are interested in that, I covered it in some detail uh, a few weeks ago, but uh, he does an excellent job. And uh, we're all here about trying to get the best answer, the best information. And so I'm making that available to you on our humble show notes. Now, one thing that's come up is um, the electronic vehicle credits. So tucked inside the massive Inflation Reduction Act that was signed in the law in August is a complex set of requirements around the EVs and other clean vehicles, and whether you do or do not qualify for the $7,500 EV credit. So I won't go over the old rules because they're the old rules I'll go into. The new route. So, uh, one, you, you, you can have a credit for $4,000 buying a used EV. That was not in the old rules. So that's good. And that was part of the politics going on saying, look, we need to make this credit available for lower income folks and that middle income folks because everybody can't walk out and buy a $60,000 Tesla brand new. So, and there should be a used car market for these things. You want to encourage it. So they put in a credit for used EVs and added other clean vehicles into the mix that use qualified fuel cells. That's a new technology. That's for someone else to describe. But there are various steps to uh, to know. One, um, where was the EV assembled? Oh, I want to step back versus say, so here's my dilemma. I get a phone call from clients all the time, all the time. Where are you, Joe? Oh, I'm in the showroom at this car dealership. Oh, that's great. What are you doing there, Joe? Well. I've just spent six hours negotiating the deal and we've agreed on a price. And, uh, you know, I got my checkbook out and all I got to do is write this check and I get this, uh, this great car. And they told me there's this, uh, this credit I'll get on my taxes. Is that right? <laughs> Nothing like pressure, right? There <laughs> literally it happens all the time. I'm sitting here with the salesman and the salesman said, you know, you really ought to check with your tax guy about these tax credits. We're only telling you what we think we know in general, and uh, we can't guarantee it. So, of course, they call me uh, if they're one of my clients or, or want to be one of my clients, and we go through it. And, uh, well, there's a lot of things to know under the old rules. Well, here's some of the new rules. Uh, for consumer, consumers buying a new model year EV, uh, starting by start by determining whether the vehicle that you're interested in is assembled in North America. If it's not assembled in North America, you can kiss the credit goodbye. There's you get nothing. So it used to be you could buy a, a Prius or or uh, some other you know a J- Japanese car, a, a German car. Didn't matter where it was assembled. They have changed that for obvious reasons, trying to get more activity here in the states. The clean vehicle credit added a new requirement for final assembly in North America, which took effect August 16th, 2022. Okay, step two, uh, the cap until January 1st. So uh, it's made in North America. You're feeling good. Uh, but now, uh, and, and until the end of 2022, there is another factor that may cause you to delay your purchase. Some manufacturers that have vehicles assembled in North America have sold 200,000 electronic EVs. That matters because under the old rules, there was a 200,000 vehicle cap. Once the manufacturer hit the cap, the credit would drop by 50% 
and then eventually to zero. Today, General Motors, which covers Cadillac, Chevrolet, and GMC, and Tesla have reached the manufacturer cap and are not currently eligible for the clean vehicle credit. Okay, right? So that means if you want to buy a Chevy Bolt today, an EV made in the U.S., it will not qualify for the clean vehicle credit. But if you wait until January 1st, 2023, the coming New Year's, right? Uh, those add another 200 vehicles to the limit and will, um, uh, and you'll be able to take the credit. Okay. But wait, there's more. All right. Step three, where the battery components are assembled. So not just the car, batteries. There is an important nugget on page 366 of the Inflation Reduction Act that adds in a battery component requirement for 2023 to kick things off. The law states that after 2023, vehicles will not qualify for the EV tax credit if the components in the battery are manufactured and assembled by a foreign entity of concern. <laughs> it's a country we don't like, as defined by the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. So you got to have that list to make sure that your foreign, a foreign entity of concern includes organizations, governments, and certain companies and even certain people. For instance, Huawei in China is listed as a foreign entity of concern. Okay, so you can see this is drilling down. The flowchart's getting longer. Oh, but there's more. About half of the full $7,500 credit is based on the requirement focused on whether the battery components are made or assembled in North America. That means to get a 3750 designated for this requirement, the percentage of the value of the batteries components that are manufactured or assembled in North America, America excuse me, has to exceed a certain threshold. Okay, so I can keep, you get my point, is that, uh, is that uh, now you need a flowchart, right? So when I get this fl fl these phone calls, um, uh, there, there, there's a limitation price matters, but not until January 1st. The new battery electric car that costs more than 55000 do not qualify for EV tax credits. Uh, that price threshold raises to 80000 for new battery electric SUVs and pickup trucks. And no, that's not adjusted for inflation. Then you get through all this. You've got your flow chart. You're on the phone with Joe. He's itching to sign that check, right? And you're trying to get through it. And then the last part, well, it matters what you make. Nothing to do with the car what you make. So uh, like a lot of things in the tax law, if your income's too high, uh, you don't get the benefit. Consumers who find that they have the perfect EV that meets all the requirements above still have to pass one final hurdle to qualify for the tax credit. That's the income tax uh, cap. The income cap. Single filers are eligible if their income is below $150,000 for head of household. It rises to $225,000. For joint filers uh, eligible for the EV credit if their income is below three hundred thousand, married filing jointly three hundred thousand, and uh, here in beautiful Fremont, California, in the shadow of Mission Peak, uh, joint incomes of three hundred thousand dollars are are not uncommon, right? So you go over that, and uh, you could lose your credits. So I want to give a shout out and uh, credit to the techcrunch.com who wrote that vehicle will have the link in the show notes okay so i'm ron cohen tax partner of greenstein rogolf olson and company here in uh, fremont california 
We're at 510-797-8661. We're happy to help. Call anytime. And that's it for this week.